Have you ever stopped to think that virtually everything we use in our daily lives is based on technology? Even further, do you understand the software behind this technology? Welcome to The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. In today's program, you'll hear how software is created and implemented, why it's written the way it is, and learn from its success stories, proven best practices, and significant failures. Now, here is your host, Martin Lacey. Good day and welcome to The Art of Software. In this episode, we'll continue to the exploration of software's transition from the traditional delivery platform and paradigm to the cloud, where continuous deployment and provisioning of services provides unprecedented scalability. Combined with the move to software as a service, Agile, which is a new style of developing and building systems, Agile becomes an integral piece of modern software development, and it provides the growth of application features and capabilities. Today, we'll explore what all this means to the growing art of software as it evolves uh, from its early stages to its modern incarnation. So today, I want to continue on from where we left off last week. I'm going to recap a bit of it because it is important to review that history because it's the foundation of, of what we're standing on today. So if we go back, rewind the clock again to the very, very beginning of man and computer, we're starting at 19, 1939, 1936, my mistake, uh, with Alan Turing. So that's, that's, the, that's the, the point in which everything begins for us. From that point, once we've got our, our technology and we've got the ideas and concept in place, we've rolled with that since 1936. In the 50s, uh, functional programming was, was created, LISP, which is uh, a, a programming language uh, that allowed you to explore development from a functional perspective, so algorithms calling other algorithms to perform uh, a particular task. Later on, following upon that, in the 60s, we had structured programming. And in, in that same vein, now this is really where, where uh, structured programming came into its uh, true uh, life was in 1966 after there was the um, uh, declaration that go-tos were bad. Go-to is a, is a statement within a program logic which tells the execution of the flow to jump to another location. Just go there and start running. And that is, leads to programs which don't seem to have any any reason or flow, they just jump from one place to another, execute some code, maybe jump back, maybe jump to another place. So the ability for a developer, uh, an engineer, um, and certainly a mathematician at, at back in those days, to follow the, the logic was a real challenge. And therefore, within the thinking of how you build and design software, the language is started to evolve and have different characteristics and different capabilities and started to rule out uh, things that were bad behaviors, uh, things that would lead to software that was less maintainable, less readable, uh, harder to move forward and evolve. 
So that brought, brought us through the 1960s where we had structured programming, the declaration of no more go-tos, the introduction of control structures to manage the flow of logic. So there was brought in the if-then-else construct. So what that is is a decision tree, uh, which you've seen and possibly seen in, in graphs in school, uh, where you have a decision if this is true, go left. If it's not, go right. And each of those paths, left or right, have their own set of routines. And they might, they themselves have logic that says, if if this condition exists, do one thing. If this other condition exists, do another. And of course, you can nest these things. So you can build a very complex structure of an algorithm for an application. Then, uh, in the 1970s, along came the waterfall methodology. That was introduced and in the 1980s was indoctrinated into the U.S. Uh, military's methodology for delivering uh, applications. Um, at the same time, through the 70s, we also introduced a couple of different ways to build software. So there was introduced something called component-based programming which is taking those modules, those programs that we've built in a structured methodology and making them run as individual units so that, you, so that it would be a component that would achieve a particular function and return. And from building these building blocks, you can have components calling other components that did various tasks and you could interchange them so that your application could call components one, two, and five, and nine. Your not your other application could call, you know, one, two, three, and seven. Um, of course, the components would have proper names so that you'd understand what was going on. But you you get the idea where you have the ability to create these logical blocks and then execute them, building up an application as component pieces. And so the sophistication of your software was allowed to becoming, become much more richer and able to do a lot more uh, complex uh, tasks. At the same time, again in the 1970s, object-oriented programming was brought about. Now that is a different way of thinking of how you apply uh, rules and algorithms into these components. So it was the evolution of the component-based model, in my view, that the object-oriented programming construct really got life blown into it. So once you have the, the concept of these components, you need to have a a way to describe them and how they're organized. When you apply object-oriented pro programming to the component-based model, you're really giving these components responsibilities and a, a role within a larger ecosystem. Now, in object-oriented programming, the methodology, the thinking is to associate your components as objects, classes of things in the real world. So, for instance, uh, in a application that was doing your accounts payable, for example, you would have 
objects or classes in there which would represent all the things that you do within that particular job function. So you'd have a class for invoice, a class for an invoice line item, classes for product, classes for product type. And you can see how it all builds up. And you're, you're actually describing the real world in software using the terms that are familiar to the domain experts, the experts in the real world. So that's, that's really where, where object-oriented really comes into its, its real utility. And that's ability to translate the real-world artifacts that we're building applications to, to manage and describe. And those are now built into the, the software that we construct to manage these things. So it becomes more uh, maintainable, more readable, more understandable. But you do have to have that whole concept of object-oriented uh, structure in your head as you're building these components. Now, in that same time period, that's that we're in the 1970s here, uh, the 1978 brought along the C programming language. Now, that wasn't an object-oriented language, but it allowed us to explore the concepts of component-based programming and structured programming in a very powerful and extensible way, and it led to other things as, as we'll go forward. Uh, in 1993, 94, uh, we started uh, seeing the browsers, uh, internet browsers being introduced and starting to open up the internet. Uh, we started having access to the internet to more than just universities. And that's really where things started to take off. So once the browsers were available and were starting to get into some availability of hardware, PCs, and things like that, things started to really explode. And I think that's where we're going to stop right now. I'm going to continue on with this vein and we'll be driving into cloud computing and where things are today in the next, uh, when we re return from our commercial break. Thanks. You've been listening to Martin Lacey from Lacey Software. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Private equity firms have over $1 trillion to invest. They are the biggest funding source for growing companies. Why do they reject 98% of deals? How do you get the right deal for your company? Join Kevin Fechtmeyer and his partners on the Deal Team 6 to uncover the next winning deal and avoid the financial landmines. Deal Junkie, Cracking the Private Equity Code, is broadcast live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on The Voice America business channel how is your business running it should be running smoothly with nary a hiccup like a finely tuned machine but if you're like most businesses yours may be running nowhere close to that 
Listen for Operationally Speaking with your host, Serju Samel. Our program will help you to run your entrepreneurial business easier, better, with less frustration. And by running it well, you're sure to be poised for faster growth. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. How is your company's marketing plan? Could it use a little help? For most businesses, the answer is yes. Tune in each week to Marketing That Won't Break the Bank. Host Janet Kunst and her guests will show you how and where to bring your marketing to the next level. Each show will feature action strategies that you can implement right away and see results. We'll make this easy for you. Start by tuning in every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. To connect with the show today, you may call into 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd prefer to send an email, you may send it to m.lacy at lacytechnology.com. Now, back to The Art of Software. Welcome back. I'm Martin Lacey. We're going over the inception of technology as it relates to software and the hardware that it runs on. Right now, we're at the Browser Wars period, 1995, circa. Uh, We had the introduction of uh, Internet Explorer in 1995, as well as Netscape Mozilla. That ensued the Browser Wars where... It was deemed uh, the, those that controlled access or provided the access, not necessarily controlling access, but provided the access to the Internet, to the masses, control the eyes and ears of everyone. So it was really uh, an eye-opener, if you will, uh, as to the potential of this avenue of exploration for allowing people to see what's going on in other businesses and around the world in terms of uh, open access to information. Now, there were the browser wars, uh, as I relate to, was actually a battle between the big players at the time, uh, Netscape being a big one and Microsoft being the other, where they actually had an antitrust trial. Uh, the U.S. government brought up, uh, brought up an antitrust trial in 2000 against Microsoft for bundling their browser with their Windows 95 operating system and Windows 98 that followed in that. And, of course, uh, we all know that that antitrust trial uh, failed. And, of course, Microsoft was allowed to remain together. uh, They did make a number of promises to support uh, other players and allow them to flourish and run on their operating system so they couldn't crowd them out. That didn't really in my opinion, make much of a difference. Netscape, Mozilla. Uh, well, Mozilla is still around, uh, and Netscape is too, but in terms of browsers, you really don't see anybody using them anymore. And so in all this period, we've been talking about the evolution and the changing of, of the software and the, met- the thoughts and methodologies behind it. But none of this is really possible without the hardware following suit. 
Now, because of course, software runs on the hardware. So when you build an application, you're constrained by the capabilities of the machine that executes it. So that's the the standard uh, limitation with all software as it's been from the very beginning of time. Time being in 1943. So 1943, one man, one computer, ENIAC, uh, or ENIAC in the 60s, uh, or up to the 60s, sorry, 43, uh, 1943. 40s had ENIAC, I believe, and then through that we were building up to mainframes. So by the time the 1960s got around, IBM had already captured the mainframe uh, mindset in the business and was building machines, uh, large-scale machines, and thinking about ways to share them. Um, I want to roll back just a little bit here at the same time. Uh, oh, sorry, roll back to what was going on in 2000 with the browser wars. Uh, in that software, or in that browser, early days of browser activity, the only type of websites were there really just web pages. And it just exposed that content as HTML pages. There wasn't really much in terms of security. Um, it was... Uh, in a way, a passive security. If you didn't know how to get to something, you weren't provided access to it. If you could guess the names of files on sites, you could get to those files. I had done it. So the security was really not so much there in the early days, and you could browse uh, past the uh, what companies and businesses had provided on on their uh, uh, web access into some of the deeper things within their infrastructure. So the security was still lacking and needing uh, a bit more um, depth and understanding from a peer deployment point of view as well as uh, from a management point of, point of view. Now, while, uh, while all this was going on in terms of the software world and the evolution of th thinking and methodologies, um, let's just roll through the changes in hardware. So, as I said, 1943 was the, the first uh, one man, one machine. And then the, that, of course, was um, grown uh, as the capabilities were becoming understood and more people were being able to move into the systems side of things. So mathematicians in the early days was all engineers, uh, mostly, well, actually from the uh, er, very early days, it was a 50-50 between men and women, uh, but that quickly through the 60s and 70s uh, came to a very small number of women in, in the field. And so when I was going to university, uh, there was just a handful of young ladies that were in my class. Um, and so in the 1960s, uh, we had the mainframes coming out. Um, 1981, myself, uh, I attended an open house at UBC uh, for a technology uh, event, and which was really interesting because that was the first time I actually saw the concept of a personal computer. They had uh, reams of wires and uh, cables attaching these 
uh, motherboards and uh, graphic processing units, various chips uh, assembled together to provide uh, an end user experience. And they were calling these personal computers, which was very interesting at the time. Uh, through the 1980s and 90s, that whole idea just exploded. And we started seeing personal computers uh, being made available. So that paired with the browser wars, which were just um, brewing, um, allowed hardware to be put out into all kinds of businesses, uh, connecting up to the internet through their, usually through a, a, a university. Um, but as the 2000s come around and more of the network fiber was put in place, businesses were connecting up to the internet directly. In the 1980s and 90s, hardware was getting much more powerful. We started to see the introduction of power stations, mini computers, the PA risk architecture, which is a proprietary architecture. Risk is a reduced instruction set computing uh, on 32 bits. So we'd hadn't uh, we'd always been doing with 16-bit and 8-bit uh, technologies prior, and so we had made a jump up to 32-bit, and that address space extended the capability of the applications as well as memory. So the what you could build with software was exponentially uh, increased through that period. Um, just as an example, my personal computer I, I bought. Uh, what was the top-of-the-line computer in 1997. I spent over 10000 well, not quite over, uh, just about $10,000 on my Gateway 2000 in 1997. This was a machine that had more power than any computer in my office, and I was uh, working at a consulting shop, so that's quite a statement. Um, of course, I was a developer and a hardcore engineer at the time. I still am. And uh, I needed and wanted to have uh, the most powerful machine I could get with the greatest amount of memory. Now, I can't recall exactly how much memory I had on that system, but I think I had almost a gig. I um, think it may have been maybe less than a gig, but you know that, that's pretty, uh, pretty much a huge amount of memory for 1997. Now... At the same time as all uh, these new advances in hardware were going on, some concepts were coming about, well, since the 1960s, to try and take advantage of the hardware and make it more available to software. And, of course, make, it, make that hardware also available to more people because the hardware itself was ex incredibly expensive, and so was developing systems. So in the 1960s, IBM introduced the concept of a timeshare solution. So where they're trying to split off or carve off CPU cycles, memory access, and create these areas of usability by customers so that they could share the cost of running the equipment and rent time on it. And that was an awesome concept and allowed more businesses to take, take advantage of the mainframes and 
share their expense without having to share the their data. So it was completely isolated, but shareable usage of a single machine. So that was introduced as a concept in the 60s, and, and it went quite well. Roll along to 1998, we've got a new company coming in the field called VMware. And, well, they introduced VMware, uh, which is a virtual machine technology which allows you to spin up operating systems on your hardware uh, in parallel. So you can have multiple versions of your entire computer running side by side on one computer. So logically, it's as if you have one CPU, one set of memory carved up and running two different or multiple operating systems on there simultaneously and with com complete isolation, which was just amazing. And that whole concept laid the foundation for being able to scale up on demand what you want to, what, what, what OSs you're going to be running on your hardware and then from there, what clients were running on what OSs, operating systems. So it was a, a way to keep on making more and more use of that one piece of hardware to more people for more things and make it more efficient. And this scalability of the hardware and usable by multiple initiatives, multiple clients, multiple customers, unbeknownst to one another, is a key concept rolling forward as we move into a much bigger, much more scalable environment. And that's where we're going to continue on with our conversation after our break. So please return to the art of software. I'm your host, Martin Lacey. And we'll continue this discussion, this, this walk through the path of how technology has evolved. And we'll be moving into where we're at today uh, after this break. Thank you. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Today we live in a truly global environment. Business can more easily be conducted now in almost any part of the world. How do you, as a business owner or professional, navigate the ever-changing business landscape? Tune in to Leadership Beyond Borders with host Kimberly J. Lewis. With a worldwide resource of guests, you'll find out what opportunities and challenges surround diverse and virtual organizations. Listen live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, you'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. To connect with the show today, you may call into 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd prefer to send an email, you may send it to m.lacey at laceytechnology.com. Now, back to The Art of Software. So let's just jump right back to where we left off in the virtualization space. Now, there's multiple threads going on here in technology as uh, we move through uh, uh, the ages in software and hardware and the methodologies and thoughts and capabilities and how we build things. So in the 1960s, uh, virtualization was an idea presented for time sharing and ability for companies to share the cost and burden for running the expensive hardware. Uh, VMware came out in 1998. Uh, then in 2003, Hypervision, uh, an open source Zen, a project by the name of Zen, uh, in 2003 created uh, this Hyperversion open source uh, ability to run multiple operating systems sim- simultaneously on the same hardware. At the same time, Microsoft released its own virtual server in 2003. So that allowed you to run different OSs within Microsoft's main servers under the hood. So you could actually spin up an instance of, say, Linux uh, running on your Microsoft Windows machine or multiple versions of Windows running under your Windows machine, which is quite fascinating. In 2006, VMware Server was introduced. So not to be outdone, uh, VMware came out with their own implementation of of a server architecture. Then open source KVM for Linux kernel came out. So now Linux has the capability to have have virtualization. And it's, well, not free, but it's open source. So that any shop wanting to uh, look under the hood and actually build one of these virtual machines and get an understanding of how that whole software application works. VMware is a piece of software. In 2008, VMware for Linux and Windows with graphic support came out. So that allowed uh, the virtualized servers to not only deploy onto Windows machines, but also Unix machines, Linux machines. The two dominant uh, hardware frameworks out there, um, it's really operating systems, but the, the, the hardware is, is closely tied to what, can, what it runs on. But nowadays, uh, Windows will run on um, most uh, CPUs and so will Linux. So that whole re- 
that whole issue is kind of melted away. And now, of course, with the uh, ability to run uh, VMware with uh, any operating system, it extends that capability so you don't even have to make that choice of what operating system you're going to deploy. It's more based on the software that's running on it. So that's kind of how VMware is, is evolved. So that's kind of an interesting parallel uh, going on. While the software has evolved in methodology and capability and thinking uh, from languages to layers of abstraction so that it's more understandable and maintainable. Throughout this time period, also in the 1960s, something was presented uh, uh, called client-server, which uh, is a way to move or have an application distributed on multiple computers simultaneously. One, the client being where uh, the end user sits and resides and the server being a back-end machine somewhere that does majority of the execution and business logic. The client is really concerned about presentation and interaction with the end user, gathering information and presenting information back to them. In the 1980s, four GLs came about, which are fourth-generation languages, which allowed you to build client-server applications much more rapidly and did a lot of the plumbing for you. So these were languages such as Powerhouse, SQL Windows, Power Builder. I mentioned these. These are some of the languages I have had the opportunity to, to work with. And they're, they're, they're languages and they're technical environments. It's, they have a deployment capability built into them. So you're actually running and building these applications in a connected, distributed environment. And that was prior to the adoption of the Internet and TCP IP as, as a means of communication between businesses. So this was mostly in-house um, networks running these applications. And then in 1998, we've got uh, .NET came about from Microsoft. So th that's really part of the early adopters program. Um, we were introduced to uh, .NET in 98. It was more of a research um, project at Microsoft. It had actually been going on for, I think, five to seven years at that point in research at Microsoft. But it was exposed to the technical um, uh, elite that were interested in 1998 and if you wanted to become a part of that early adopter, adopters program, you could. And that gave you insight to what Microsoft was building. At the same time, and independent of this, uh, in the 1990s, peer-to-peer -peer networks were starting to become popular. Napster. So what these are are applications that run on anyone's computer, on any CPU, they don't necessarily rely on any particular server or, or any other client to connect, but they do require a connection to some servers, some, some other clients, to perform their function. So Napster, in this particular case, was a file-sharing application. So it needed to talk to someone else in order to share a file. The way these peer-to-peer 
systems work is it's a multi-node capability. So I might talk to five different computers and each one of those computers might talk to five or nine computers and so on. And the network just mushrooms and blows up from there. And through that peer-to-peer organization, you're able to share files. So you announce that I've got four files in my system that I'm willing to share. And these are, these are their names. And you make that known to the computers that are talking to you. And that information is relayed up and down the chain. So you end up seeing the shopping list of all the, soft, all the files that are available by all the machines that are connected uh, through various nodes to your machine. And you can select to download them. And of course, what was being downloaded and shared in these particular cases was music. And the packaging of that content uh, was following TCP IP protocols so you could assemble your file not necessarily top to bottom, if you will, but by all the various bits and pieces coming at, in random order and then being assembled in the correct way so that once you had all the pieces, you could listen to your music in it and you'd have the entire file to, to, to work with. And, of course, if there was any corruption or, or things like that, you'd, there, there would uh, be attempts to... Uh, collect the broken packages and and put those in, so that that got you your peer-to-peer network. And in fact, uh, there was one really interesting project at that time that I was involved in. It was the SETI project, and that was that stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Now that instead of sharing um, uh, files on your system, what that did was shared your computing power. So what would happen is a file would be pushed down to your computer and so along with that would be an algorithm to perform a function on that file. Now what we were doing in the SETI project was downloading a piece of uh, data, uh, a chunk of um, satellite information, not satellite information, but um, uh, s- space data, if you will, um, from some of the some of the uh, tel- space telescopes, and they were looking for patterns. So, in all that noise of of uh, information, white noise coming from space, uh, we were running algorithms to look for patterns. And that would be a signal of intelligent life out in space. And I believe that project is still ongoing. I'm no longer a part of it um, since moved on. And um, but it was an interesting way to to push out that that computing demand uh, to any number of nodes and uh, get that computational power um, working for you. Now, in 2000, in, 19, in 2000, uh, Microsoft um, was heavily involved in this distributed networking capability. Uh, we started seeing N-tier uh, computing. So that was like peer-to-peer, but it's more controlled and uh, orchestrated. So we've got 
com and decom at the same time. So com is component object model, decom is distributed component object model. So we've got these different capabilities, different applications, objects uh, able to be moved around on a network, executing and running, performing their function, reporting back across the network to their invoker and telling the how that execution uh, per- performed and allowing it to continue on. So it's a distribution of logic and processing power exemplified by the SETI project and enabled by uh, technologies such as Microsoft Distributed, DCOM, um, in, in a local area network. Uh, and in that same vein, all along those the, the, at the same time period, software as a service was was being envisioned. So in in around the 2000s, they were proposing the ability to use software across the wire as a service. So instead of installing it and purchasing it, you actually rented access to it, and that enable the ideas of, of companies to, instead of building software for, for sale, if they built software for use and enabled its access over the internet, you could have this ability to sell software or sell the access to software, ability to maintain it without having to distribute it to all your clients. And what's more, a very key point that uh, was brought home to me when we were doing this in 2000 is that the valuations of the company that adopts this paradigm go way up. What do I mean by that? Well, when you're selling software as a product, it's a single sale and hopefully they might come back and do an upgrade or buy the next version. When you're selling software as a service, it's a subscription type model. So you've got built-in recurring revenue right there from the very inception. So from that idea, when you've got a recurring revenue model, the valuations of your company become much more, uh, much larger and much more predictable. Uh, and that it puts the value of what you're doing much higher. So with that thought in mind, we're going to have our last break, and I'll wrap up with how uh, service-oriented architecture is adopting this and where we're going with DevOps, because that's an exciting new area, um, and uh, it's not just for the, the big players. So we'll get into that shortly. Thanks for staying with me. I'm Martin Lacey from Lacey Software Technology, and you're listening to The Art of Software. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. 
Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. In this fast-paced, technologically driven world of business, the stress can be crushing. It's exhausting business leaders and burning out good employees. It is not enough to work from the top down. We must now learn to work from the inside out. Listen to Innovative Mindful Solutions with Terry Geller. We will discuss ways to transform roadblocking emotions using mindful-based tools you can incorporate into your business and your life right now. Don't stress. Tune in every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on The Voice America business channel moving forward can be difficult to do sometimes there is always something going on many times nobody else knows exactly what you're going through if you are experiencing pain or loss even something unexplained that is missing in your life you'll want to tune into go for it with host joe hausman joe and her guests will show you laughter and love sometimes you just need something a little positive in your week Make that spot Thursday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. To connect with the show today, you may call into 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd prefer to send an email, you may send it to m.lacy at lacytechnology.com. Now, back to The Art of Software. Hi, and welcome back to The Art of Software. I'm Martin Lacey, and we're going over the evolution of software and hardware married together. And currently, we're at the, uh, around the 19th, or 2002 area, um, and things have really changed a lot since 1943. And by 2000, we've adopted uh, de- adopted and deployed network or software across networks. We've got them communicating and working together. We've adopted methodologies for building software. We've moved from waterfall into agile. We're building applications faster. We've we're integrating applications uh, like never seen before and, and communicating between different components that weren't necessarily meant to communicate. In 2002, Microsoft introduced um, C Sharp and actually uh, uh, had uh, have provided it to the open source community as a standard. So it's been submitted to the uh, EMCA board. I can't remember what the n- acronym is, but it's uh, it's a uh, open s- open standard now, so that you can actually build your own uh, C sharp implementation. In fact, it's been ported over to Linux. So that is the Mono project, um, uh, making all the .NET infrastructure that was built in C-sharp, now available to Linux. Now, uh, in, in that introduction of Visual Studio and C-sharp in 2002, a new concept was introduced, or at least one that we started to adopt, and that was polyglot programming. What that is, is the 
mixture of different languages with different programming languages within a given application. So you start to see that some languages are better at doing particular uh, operations. Their libraries are more robust libraries, meaning the the software that they can call and have access to, and the, the routines, the methods in which uh, you build your software is slightly different from one language to another. So we were actually making use of that at, at Financial CAD for our financial libraries in this just distributed software as a service network so that we could have uh, things written in, in C-sharp that, well, most of the applications was written in C-sharp, but there were times where we needed to do some uh, high-end processing. We wrote our own Blowfish algorithm for encryption. So that was done in C++. Some of the graphics uh, libraries for processing images, those were only available in Visual Basic. But we managed to tie all these together into one cohesive surface. So in 2009, the, the, uh, the uh, Service-Oriented Architecture Manifesto was uh, described or presented. Now, what that states is a summation of, of basically where I've been rolling through this whole conversation. And that's talking about components and how they work together. So let's just say what it, uh, let's get to what it says here. A service-oriented architecture is less about how to modularize an application and more about how to compose an application by integrating distributed, separately maintained, and deployed software components. It's enabled by technologies and standards that make it easier for components to communicate and cooperate over a network, especially an IP network. So a service-oriented architecture is more a the infrastructure and how you build your components so that they can communicate and can work along these, these architectures. When we were building service-oriented architectures and exposing those on the internet, we were using something called SOAP which is a simple object access protocol, which runs on TCP IP and allows you provide uh, command and content infrastructure to another program because you're, ex you're ex exposing your software with metadata. So it describes in XML what that application does, what information it needs to run, what all the methods are that you can ac access and what data it returns. At the same time, or in con conjunction with this, uh, there is a different methodology as well from, from SOAP, and that's called REST, and that's Representational State Transfer Mechanism. Now, that, that didn't come about until after SOAP. SOAP is much more robust, allows you to expose component logic as well as their data through multiple interfaces, whereas REST is more for data retrieval. So it's more for gathering data. It would be perfect for uh, uh, doing file transfers, that kind of thing. So it's not so much uh, command and control, running logic, but it is for pulling data down. And funny enough, 70% uh, of applications today uh, run uh, using that REST architecture. So we've moved along now into our, our current day where we've got these complex environments, multi-staged environments, uh, and within a business infrastructure, 
to build applications, we've we've organized ourselves into various tiers um, to to actually build the application. So we've got a development area, quality assurance area, staging and production. So we've managed to create a whole rollout of of business applications, uh, a whole methodology of building these things out, as well as deploying them onto the internet or intranet within your business application. There's really great technology coming out now. Um, It's been percolating and based on the VMware that we talked about in the 60s. And, of course, it has been working and growing since then in 2000. And now we're in, in 2015. Uh, well, right. Uh, this is uh, when DevOps started, started coming to its, for, uh, its uh, mainstream adoption. DevOps is that whole concept of deploying your business applications and keeping them on, up to date on the fly in your environment. So that's development operations and synchronization of your development environments from development quality stage to production in a cohesive growing environment so that you can move your code from these various test and development areas into the mainstream production and orchestrate them so that they work in concert with all the other components and services and even servers. So with the DevOps world, we're actually even able to provision computers out there because of virtualization. So we don't even need to run the hardware on our own our own premise. We push it out to the cloud. And the cloud is where s- systems such as Amazon and Microsoft have put servers around the world so that you can use VMware type technology virtualization to spin up new servers and deploy software onto those servers. Software that services, software that is software as a service, software that runs as websites, as parts of the of the operating system itself. So now we're in this really rapidly changing world of DevOps where we can build applications on your uh, on your local area, deploy them to the to the to the um, cloud. It could be an internal cloud, or it can be one that's uh, available to the public. But you're you're seeing this whole growth and expo- explosion of capability, and the uh, coming from the DevOps reports, uh, they're claiming that. IT organizations can um, experience 60 times fewer failures due to the DevOps methodology and mantra of constant uh, uh, growth and maintaining um, management over all these components out in the wild. So that's really where we're at today, and it's kind of an interesting uh, state of how we've got here. We've got business applications rolling out, moving forward, changing rapidly, being deployed and pushed out into the field in record time. And uh, the complexity of these applications are only increasing and the demands to make sure that they perform as expected and have the ability to fail over uh, in in the event that they do have uh, a problem and still recover. 
those are all the new areas of, of business applications is that constant use, rollover and recovery and failover and uh, just throughout the distribution of, of components and the, the microservices that these components are now packaged up as, uh, we're going to be seeing much more uh, powerful applications pushed out onto the internet as well as new capabilities provided by all the growth of data that's now available on the internet. So as we see the internet of things pushing volumes and volumes of data into the cloud, we're going to be able to analyze that information and draw new conclusions from it. In the cloud, we're now starting to see things as, such as artificial intelligence. So we've got algorithms there pouring through all this data to draw some draw some conclusions. So please stick with us and come back again. Thanks for being with us. This is Martin Lacey for the Art of Software. Thank you for listening to The Art of Software. Be sure to join your host, Martin Lacey, again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of our program on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we talk again, have a great week.